Welcome back. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve O. News Talk WLOB 100.5, 1310 AM. We've got a very special guest. Although he doesn't necessarily read the news, he plays a huge role in producing, editing, and presenting the news here in Southern Maine. We have uh, Mo Melsek. He is the editor of The Forecaster. Welcome to the show, Mo. Thanks, Steve. Nice to be here. I think there's supposed to be some sort of uh, journalistic disclosure here at the top of the show where I've, for the last few years, I've written for The Forecaster, so I've worked directly with Mo. And uh, I want to talk about The Forecaster. I want to talk about the role of uh, community newspapers. But before we get there, uh, why don't we start with your background, where you are from, where you grew up, and then we'll talk about academically uh, what led you into journalism and what led you here to me. Sure. I uh, I grew up in um, what people from New York City would call upstate New York, but it's actually southern New York near uh, Near the Tappan Zee Bridge on the west side of the Hudson. One of my favorite bridges. Uh-huh, it's just uh-huh. whenever you, think, you even say Tappan Zee, you kind of smile. Yeah, I went. I went to Tappan Zee High School. Really? I really? didn't even know there was really? a, a town. Yeah. I thought it was named well, for some well, it's, historical yeah, think, figure or yeah, something. Yeah, I mean, the, I think it has to do with the the Dutch settlers and whatnot. Um, it was actually a town called Orangeburg, which is about three miles south of where the the bridge lands on the west side of the Hudson, what? about 20 miles north of Manhattan. Yeah, people in Manhattan, anything that's a little bit north, they call it upstate oh, New oh, York. Oh, yeah, and New the, York the, is other huge. Side, the other side of the river, forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I grew up there. I went to Syracuse University. Uh, the uh, Newhouse School of Public Communications, that's right? right? That's right. Can you right. talk just a second as we move along that Syracuse and, and the Newhouse School has is an iconic academic institution, probably better known for a lot of broadcast journalism. Yeah. A lot of the folks yeah. that you see on air and a lot of folks, particularly at ESPN, that do a lot of on air. It it really is, uh, I don't know how they rank them, but it's an iconic school relative to broadcast and written journalism. What was it like going to school at Syracuse? And talk a little bit about the Newhouse School when you were there and kind of where it stands now for either uh, maybe young people interested in journalism or broadcast or media? And uh, why is the Newhouse School so well-known and so iconic? Well, I think, I think it's, it's because it's maintained its position as sort of a top-tier journalism slash communications school, in part because of the, some of the big names that have come out of it. Um, and, and there are, you know, names that people don't always, you wouldn't always recognize also because, you know, people in print don't get the sort of the reputation that the broadcast folks do. Um, I think it's, you know, I think they, they recognized early on that there was a demand for, for the education, the, the communications and and journalism education, um, and it, in sheer number, I mean, it's a large school. It's a large program with a lot of different majors, uh, everything from public relations to advertising to photography to newspaper. I mean, I, I graduated with a with a bachelor of science in newspaper. Um, wow. Uh, and, and but this was in the late seventies, right? Yeah, For this context, was, this, yeah, this is uh, an. Maybe two generations ago now. But it was also of, a time when media and journalism and newsprint was in a completely different oh, yeah. state. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean I mean we we were working when I started there we were working on on typewriters and um, those IBM Selectric with the little white ribbon that if you hit the little button it would go back, <laughs> the little ball would spin at a million miles an hour and then the white thing would the white uh, tape and that would be how you would white out a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. um, you know, I took I took classes in photography. I took I, I mean, nobody I when I was still working on on an IBM computer with a deck of cards when when I was in college. That right. was that was a computing class. Um, so it's it's things have changed significantly. That's I think a- today today they're turning out people who are essentially one man bands. You know, they do everything they do writing they do they do radio they do video right. they, um, they do photography um, 
we were taught photography and if we, you know, and then we could take as much of it or as we wanted to. Um, but most of our education was in, was in writing and reporting. Um, yeah. and it was fun. And, and, and to your point, there were more specialized, you know, whether it's uh, TV stations or daily newspapers or weeklies, they would be writers, they'd be editors, and they'd be photojournalists. And yeah. they, they would all kind of collaborate. And to your point, I see many of my friends in the media now uh, that is, you know, there's some challenges in, in today's media because of the digital age. But for, for most of these folks to be successful, they have to do all those things. They have to do social media. Most of the print writers carry, whether iPhone or special little cameras, they capture video, they have to upload video to a story, even if it's a print story, they have to be their own photographer, because very few papers even carry uh, staff photographers. Well, that's, I mean, we, we expect our, our reporters to, to at least have a passing familiarity with how to work the camera on their right. phone. You know, it's, it's a basic part of the job now. So, so after graduating Syracuse in the late seventies, mm-hmm. uh, you went out to uh, the land of uh, California. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit about what your first job was, and when and when you went to Newhouse School, did you go into it with an interest in journalism, or was it an interest in writing? Was it an interest in, and then how did that lead to your first job, which really kind of set the course for your career? Yeah, I actually, I mean, I had the interest in journalism. I I wasn't positive that's what I wanted to do when I started at Syracuse. So I actually started in the in the College of Liberal Arts and then transferred into Newhouse. Um, by the time I got out, uh, I was obviously sure that's what I wanted to do. Um, landed in, in Los Angeles because my eventually my all my fiance and now my wife, who was also a Newhouse grad, um, Landed a job with the Associated Press in L.A., um, and it's the kind of job you don't turn down. Um, and in fact, we got great advice from a professor friend of ours at Newhouse, who essentially said, "If you don't make a move like this now, you're never going to make it." And then it was probably the best advice we ever got. So we ended up in L.A. Um, I ended up uh, within a couple of months working for a publishing company on a magazine called Automotive Age, which was a an auto industry business magazine essentially for car dealers covering the sales and marketing side of the auto industry, um, which at the time was going through some upheaval. It was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a good time to be there. Um, had the chance to do some traveling and, and interview some some major names in the in the car industry, um, attend some uh, car introductions every now and then, that kind of thing. Uh, eventually landed a job on the business desk of the LA Daily News, um, where my wife was working by then. Uh, and within about three or four years, we decided that um, – L.A. was not the place for us. Um, That's about the same time that I was out in California. A little bit later, I first moved to California, I think, in 85, 86, in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And for me, I had a job with Coca-Cola in the Midwest. And one day I got the call that said, hey, we have an office in Irvine in Orange County. Would you like to move out? And I'm like, yeah. And then it, that led to living in Laguna Beach and a little bit south of L.A., but it's a different culture. Yeah, yeah. And it was great. We were there for seven, eight years. And um, it was great when we were, you know, a young couple without kids and right. and you could really enjoy L.A. And at that time, there were actually times a day when you could get around the city without getting stuck in traffic. Um, but we decided, you know, to raise a family. And uh, my wife had gone back to law school. Um, she was graduating from law school and looking for a clerkship afterwards. And um, one of her professors at UCLA said, well, if you're looking for clerkships and you're looking to get back to the East Coast, you have to go see the judge that he had worked for as a law clerk. And things developed and we ended up in, in Portland for what we thought would be a year. Wow. 
Um, we have uh, Mo Melsack here. He's the uh, editor of The Forecaster. It's actually a group of newspapers, primarily here in Southern Maine. So uh, just out of curiosity, did your, did your wife go to continue in the path of journalism with her law degree, or did she ultimately go into the legal profession? No, she's, she's like I said, we came back here for what we thought would be a one-year clerkship. I was going to freelance for a year. We had a three-month-old daughter, um, and one year turned into two. Uh, the judge eventually said, why don't you just become my career law clerk? Mm-hmm. And she's um, she's now been in that position ever since. She's one of I don't know a few might be a few hundred career federal law clerks around the country, um, and she's never practiced law, but she knows her way around the law. Well, fantastic! So you came back in early or uh, moved back to Maine in eighty four. And so what was your next step in terms of your career uh, in journalism? After that that first year when we decided we were going to be here for a while, um, I actually started working um, part-time and vacation relief at the old Evening Express, which was the afternoon paper published by the Press Herald. Are there um, any afternoon pa- – I, I remember as a paper boy in the 60s for the Boston Globe outside of Boston – and I remember clearly the Patriot Ledger had an afternoon edition and the Boston Globe did. Does any paper, do you think, I mean, that's kind of an, an obsolete uh, element now, you know. Metros, I, I really doubt it. Um, I mean, the Journal Tribune in Biddeford is, is an afternoon paper. The Times Record in Brunswick is an afternoon paper. You know, they, they but do see, they have a morning edition? No, or it's just, no, it's, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's. It would always be late-breaking news, and you'd get up and you'd get the morning paper, and something would happen around noon, and all of a sudden you need to, you know, because you didn't have all these other media outlets. Yeah. So whatever came through the paper was kind of the, yeah. the information of record. And, and the Evening Express was really the local daily paper. The Press Herald was was it had a you know it had a fair amount of of Portland city news, you know, overnight stuff, but mostly. World National Wire Service. They had they had two very distinct personalities, um, and I was working, as I said, on the Express, doing doing mostly copy desk work. And then when we decided we were going to be here a little bit longer, I started looking around and found out that an old colleague of mine from the Daily Orange at Syracuse was was working at the Journal Tribune in Biddeford. I uh, went and talked to them about a job, and and they created their first business writer's position for me. I went to work down there in the fall of 85, probably. And uh, within about a month, Nike closed its factory in Saco. First big story down there for the new business writer. Right. Uh, eventually became the uh, business editor. We hired on somebody else as a, as the business writer. Then I became the features editor at the Journal Tribune. Um, uh, eventually what we called the weekend editor in charge of the Saturday paper. And then the city editor was where I, I topped out down there. Talk a little bit about, you know, you're with The Forecaster, which is a a weekly group of uh, newspapers, but on daily newspapers and even The Forecaster, talk a little bit in terms of what is a standard kind of paradigm in most print newspapers or weekly newspapers and how the hierarchy works and how generally they're supposed to be uh, in in, in reputable uh, journalism a divide between the business side, which typically the publisher will oversee business operations and sales, and then the managing editor, executive editor, will be responsible uh, through a Chinese wall or big wall or big metal wall or a Donald Trump wall, <laughs> will be in charge of kind of the purity of the writing and the journalistic standards. Well, that that really sums it up. I mean, the the for example, at the Forecaster, um, the publisher runs the advertising side. Uh, we work in conjunction a lot. Obviously, we discuss things. But when it comes to day-to-day decision-making about about news or advertising, um, I make the decisions about news, and 
she makes the decisions about about advertising and keeps an, an eye on the ad staff and the ad reps. And in this and, case, uh, Karen Wood is the publisher, right? Yeah. We've recently sort of changed the hierarchy a little bit um, with the parent company's acquisition of current publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I kind of report now to, to Dave Costello, who's the president of the forecaster. Great. So from from Biddeford, what was it that uh, brought you to the forecaster originally? And then let's talk about um, the the business side and the journalistic side of the forecaster in terms of the scope and the business model of a weekly versus a, a daily. Um, I was in Biddeford for almost 20 years. Um, towards the end of that period, the paper went through a couple of sales. I guess I had sort of a disagreement with the owners over the direction of the newspaper. And um, I essentially hung around as long as they allowed me to. Yeah. Uh, and when they told me I was no longer invited to come into work, um, I went home and within a month was uh, hired as the uh, managing editor at The Forecaster. And and the managing editor relative to the forecaster, many that that is the the head Fred relative to I know well, there's sometimes time, executive yeah, or yeah, managing. Yeah, it, it varies. For example, at the Journal Tribune, when I was there, the managing editor was actually the top position in the newsroom. Um, at the forecaster, when I started, it was the editor and publisher uh, was Marion McHugh, um, who is now a columnist at the forecaster. Um, so she owned the paper. She was the editor. I was hired as the managing editor, sort of the, the person to handle the day-to-day, week-to-week, getting lady, out yeah. of the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Now we don't have a managing editor. We have we have my position as the executive editor. Um, there's a copy editor and a, who, who works for me on the forecaster. Um, it's, so it's the same number of positions, just different titles, really. So relative to the forecaster, I think in our our broadcast area, everyone's familiar with the forecaster. It is a free, non-subscription-based weekly. If you go to a restaurant, you go to many public places or stores or grocery stores, there's a, there's a rack for the forecaster. Talk a little bit about both the business model and the editorial model of producing a weekly like the forecaster, in this case, based in Falmouth, but you have six papers covering 80% of Cumberland County from Scarborough up to Bath and the Lake regions. So when there's no subscription and the digital portal is open, so I think a lot of readers, I've heard from my column that many people who follow the forecast or follow my column, see it online, which is obviously a trend. But how does that work both in terms of how you direct the editorial focus and how the business of the forecaster operates where it's totally ad-based, ad-supported versus nobody's paying for the newspaper? And, and talk a little bit about the forecaster in terms of just how it's structured. Simple. It's that simple. Um it's totally advertising supported. I think we can exist that way because the advertisers understand that our commitment to being a real newspaper um, means that our readers take the newspaper seriously. Um, you know, they're not picking it up just because it's got an insert in it every week. They're going to spend time looking at the pages, flipping through the pages, they're going to, their ads are going to, are going to be seen. It's a valuable commodity for them. Um, I think, you know, the way, the way you give a newspaper value is by making it something that, that the readership comes back to week after week or day after day. And there are some publications that land in your mailbox every week that you don't subscribe to, but every week they show up. I don't know about you, but I, I might look at the front page of those, I never turn inside. I never see the advertising. I never see the inserts. I might be aware of which inserts are there, but I just don't have the interest. Mm -hmm. Um, I think our readers have the interest 
you know, to, to flip through the pages, to look beyond the front page and, and to see the ads, which makes, makes the product valuable for the advertisers. So in kind of the circular cycle, your goal as the editor, executive editor, the forecaster, is to provide and present as much meaningful content that ultimately uh, drives readership, loyal readership, high, uh, you know, targeted readership. That readership drives value for advertisers who want to get to those readers with their message and their advertising. Um, how does digital fit into the mix relative to the forecaster? Because in the last 10, 15 years, all types of print journalism and broadcast journalism have been going against the headwind of digital because the business model of uh, many, many dimensions of digital is still emerging. It's still the Wild West. And if you can't commoditize the value of what you're producing and you have to give it away free, that's not sustainable. And we've seen newspapers all over the country either go out of business or merge or trade hands. So relative to the economics of the forecaster and also the journalistic approach, how has digital evolved over your tenure and where do you see it going? Well, I think economically for a paper like The Forecaster, it's, it's probably less of an issue because we were always giving the news away. Right. And people weren't paying for it before. So for us, we're giving it away, you know, in a, in a different medium perhaps. The, the key is, I think, on the other side, on the advertising side, is how do you, how do you make advertisers see the value in, in that and, and how do you quantify the value for them? Um, and that's probably been the biggest hurdle. I think we just try and convince the advertisers that, you know, show them the, the, the analytics that show how many eyeballs, how many hits we're getting on the website and make it worth their while to go there in addition to going in, in the print publication. Well, well, I think it's a bigger, it's a bigger problem, obviously, for, for paid. newspapers yeah. who have relied on paid circulation. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what what is the, and I know it's a moving target, but currently relative to each weekly edition of the forecaster, what is the approximate breakdown between readers who are picking up the newspaper and how many you're publishing, because you have to publish in excess, I guess, and then what percent through clicks and through kind of digital footprint you see people online and what does the trend look like over the last few years? And where do you see the trend gr- uh, going in, in the next few years? You know, I, I, I'm really not sure. Uh, um, I know that that we distribute about seventy or eighty thousand print copies a week. Um, uh, in terms of number of hits a week, you know, it tends to vary. Sometimes it, it, you'd be amazed at at how. I mean, if you have a week where for some reason, we fall off on on promoting stories either through Facebook or Twitter or Google Plus. You know, if if we slack off for some reason, you do tend to see the numbers drop because that's where the hits on the website are being are being generated. Um, so it does vary from week to week. Occasionally, um, I'm pretty sure we still don't have the kind of um the kind of numbers on the on the website that we have in print and, and that the company really wants to have either i think there's a it's sort of that's the that's the nut that has to be cracked you know is is sort of convincing people that and educating them that number one they can find i mean they're going to see the stories that are in the paper and print on the website two, maybe three days before they're available on, you know, on, in the print edition. Um, but people are creatures of habit. Um, and especially, I think, our readership, which, which tends to, to be older than, than the average, you know, digital reader. Um, you know, we tend to skew a little bit older than, than the, the, the web generation and and those people want their newspapers in in paper form. 
Okay. We have uh, Mo Melsack here. He is the uh, executive editor of the Forecaster Group of Papers. As the editor is the person charged with determining what makes it into the paper relative to stories and columns and that type of thing, and what do you look for and how would you differentiate the mission of a community weekly versus a daily, let's say like the Portland Press Herald or the Bangor Daily News. And as you mentioned, because there's a time lag between whether it's on the digital side or by the time it's written and then it gets out, there is a time issue. And we live in a period where every, everybody, not everybody, but the younger generation is used to getting information, data on a click or a bit or a bite almost instantaneously. So other than serving these local communities from Scarborough up to the lake regions where, you know, I, I would I would describe it as kind of the, you know, the nuts and bolts is here's what's happening in each local community relative to meetings, town council, school board, kind of local political governmental news, which is specific to each community. I think, you know, there's some sports stuff uh a uh, big fan of Michael Hoffer in terms of his writing. He's, he, he puts out a tremendous amount of uh, really thoughtful work in covering predominantly high school sports. But other than that, how do you kind of steer the ship editorially of what you want to put into the paper uh, beyond kind of the kind of the meat and potatoes of, you know, the Falmouth Town Council voted on this or this candidate is running for this? in terms of providing content you think is meaningful to the readers? Well, you know, that, the thing is, that's, that is, you know, the, the core mission of the, of the paper is, is that meat and potatoes stuff. And that's, that's why the forecaster came into existence 31 or so years ago, um, because a small group of people in Falmouth were basically, um, disappointed with the way their community was being covered by the existing daily newspaper. Um, so it's a, it's a model and a, and a mission that obviously has legs. And, you know, it's three decades of, the, of what is now the northern edition of the Forecaster, and we've added three other editions as well as taking on the American Journal and the Lakes Region Weekly. Um, outside of that, that week-to-week, covering the councils and boards and and whatnot um, it it's the same as it is any place else I think it's it's news judgment it's it's giving reporters the the freedom to in, to investigate stories and issues that that interest them um, one of the one of the things we we always tell our our new hires is that, they're never going to work any place else in their career where they're going to have as much autonomy, as much responsibility to to set the agenda for what they're going to do. Um, we want them to 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 tell the stories that they think are interesting, and because they're going to be told in a more interesting way. Um, we want them to sort of stretch their wings, especially if they're if they're starting out in the industry if they're young we want them to you know explore ways to to write stories and and use different techniques and and i think the you know the the older you get in in this business the more stereotyped and pigeonholed you get in terms of the job you do you know you become the the political guy or you become the science writer you you know and and everything you do week in week out starts to look the same. And that's fine. You get paid a lot as you go up the food chain. Um, but but we rely on, on our reporters to use judgment and we, we rely on our editors to use judgment um, and try and try and write stories that, that they enjoy and that they, they think the readers will enjoy and find interesting. We have uh, Mo Melsek here. He is the executive editor of the Forecaster Group of Papers. Talk a little bit about the role, the function, the direction, and the ethos of columns and opt-eds in that section of the newspaper. And by definition, and I think by um, uh, just by structure, 
there's a clear difference between people who are writing on news assignment where they go to a meeting or they go to a town or city meeting and they're kind of reporting the news according to a very rigid structure with the goal being in the requirement to be very um, pragmatic and, and hold rigid principles of not letting their opinion get into the story. So I'm sure you have writers that as you're talking to about a story, there are ways both subtle and overt where somebody can kind of slant their writing in a news story. But relative to the columnist in the forecaster, what is the theme and, and has the role in the forecast or other weekly papers, it, is, is there any direction? Like recently, obviously, we've gone through a political period where there's heightened sensitivity, so there's probably a higher percentage of stories that have a political or kind of a civic thing. But how do you decide with columns on how to either present or select columnists or kind of direct that function in the paper? The... Um the key there is really just the mix. You know, we try and present a mix of opinion, a mix of of writing styles. Um, you know, I think, you know, obviously— Ed, Mix or balance? Because I think there's well, both—I don't want to say liberal and conservative because those are kind of labels tied to political parties. But for no better term— is political ideology part of where you see balance, or should that not be a factor in terms of how how columnists write within the forecasters? When it comes to columnists, I, I mean, I don't, I don't look at our mission as providing you know balance necessarily. We do want to provide opinions from various parts of the spectrum. I mean, achieving balance. I mean, I mean, you know, balance. I mean, it's it's not something that that is really measurable. I mean. Unless you're going to say, you know, so-and-so, columnist A is as far to the right as columnist B is to the left, so that achieves balance. Um, and I, I think that that's an, a, a, losing, a losing question, a losing battle. You, you're never going to get people to agree on what balance is. So, I, I mean, I think providing a mix is, is the goal. Um, and I think we do a good job of that. I think I think we always have. Um, it's it's sometimes it's not easy because, um, to be honest, and I think you understand this that it's you know writing a column, whether it's weekly, daily, monthly, every other week, is not an easy thing to do. We've 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 talked. I, I've talked to lots of people who want to write columns. And then when they realize what it takes and and how hard it is, they they just give up I and mean, they can't do it. Um, so it's it's not it's not something that's easy to do. It's not the, the mix is not something that's always easy to 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 maintain. Um, you know we don't we're not paying professional writers generally with you know with one or two exceptions. We're um, we're, we're looking for people who, who are writing because it's, it's something they like to do. Um, it's probably, it's not their, their job, their profession. And, and you're at the, you know, the mercy of, of, of really what their commitment is also. How about letters to the editor and then also the comment <laughs> section online? Have you seen either a trend or a shift in terms of how newspapers and weeklies like The Forecaster either invite or incite or um, allow public commentary to make it both inside the paper or online? And have you seen a shift in terms of uh, dialogue or engagement in the last few years? Well, there's I mean, there's definitely been, been a change, uh, you know, with, with the— the advent of commenting online, um, and and with and because of the the complications that that presents, I mean it, it's it's really we're talking about two different two different mediums. Um, in print, our our policy has always been that as long as a letter to the editor meets our published standards, which include things like length, content. Uh, Transparency on the identity? Um, 
it's i mean that's that depends i mean you know it depends on what you think i mean we all we ask for is a name an address and a phone number you know when somebody writes um the 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 letters you know get in if they meet the criteria um online we operate an unmoderated comment section and that means that that we don't we don't look at that people can go on as long as they want they can say whatever they want um as long as it's within the bounds of decency and nobody is reading those comments top to bottom word for word we will respond if someone flags a comment because they think it's a problem right. but but it's the wild wild west yeah, and, and you know, you and I have had discussions about this in the past, both in my uh, role as a columnist, and then also prior to that during uh, um, my um, political, my brief political career. My point of view on online comments is: I'm all for uh, open press. I'm all for engagement, but I have a particularly hard time with kind of digital anonymity because I think it, you know, in, in for most daily and weekly papers, there's, there's one standard, which I think you described uh, fairly as, you know, the criteria, the name, the address, which kind of safeguards information and letters and opinion being presented and the the problem in, in in a few minutes i want to talk to you about fake news and fake information and kind of the current state of the state but the problem is when somebody looks at a letter or a comment on the forecaster they may or may not know that it's an automated system they may or may not know that you know fast freddy from brunswick is a real person or it's a a person with a grudge or a vendetta, all they know is they read something about, in some cases, a person, a political person, a private person, a journalist, a columnist. And I just have a real problem with newspapers allowing people to write comments under the banner. If they want to go to a separate site or a blog site or if they want to write something on Twitter or something out of the control of the jurisdiction of the institution— no problem. But if it's under the URL or under the website or under the structure of the forecaster, the Press Herald, the Bangor Daily News, and a person writes something uh, either attacking or criticizing or suggesting something, I just don't think it should be allowed anonymously. And I know that discussion is happening a lot in newsrooms, and I know digital policy is evolving but do you see that changing, or do you do you think that it's just the way well, it is? It's I mean it's changed at, at some publications. You know, there are some some websites where you have to um, affirmatively a Facebook kick, or some well, other identity. Well, we well, have to either either use an identity that's registered somewhere, um, or you have to affirmatively click through to see the comments. They don't automatically pop up. Right. Um, there are some publications that have just stopped accepting online comments. Um, again, I mean that's that's not a decision that 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 I can make unilaterally. Um, you know, I may have an opinion about online commenting, which but, is which is that it it's it's generally not very useful, um, other than to to gain eyeballs on. And many times it's the same eyeballs. I mean, oh yeah, you know yeah. the. I don't want to describe him as the lead columnist or the dean of columnists at the Forecaster, but Ed Edgar Beam is certainly, and I enjoy his writing. I think he's a very skilled writer, a technical writer, and I think he every week he he has a very distinctive point of view. I don't always agree with it, but he he's also somebody who I I, I would describe Edgar as not wanting confrontation, but he, he leans into it. He's a, he's a glutton for punishment. Well, he's a glutton, <laughs> but, but for most of his columns, there can be 10, 20, 30 uh, comments. Half of them are Edgar going back and forth, and then the other half, or I can't even name of the people, are like the same two or three people. 
And without being disparaging, I picture them all sitting in little dark rooms in their basement, writing back and forth without any real prohibitive value relative to readers to the paper or to the public at large. And my issue is it happens through the banner, whether it's paper or virtual, of the forecaster. And to publish, whether it's digitally or through pulp, points of views and comments that in many cases are kind of indefensible, I just would prefer that doesn't see, exist. See, but that's – but I mean just to play devil's advocate, I mean that's your opinion of those comments. I guarantee you there are lots of people out there who agree with some of those people whose, whose points of view you disagree with and who, and, who's, and who state those points of view in ways that you, you might find you know, repulsive. Or disagreeably, you know, you might you might view disagreeably. Many times they're just they're, boring. Many, well, many times they're boring. That's their right. That's their right to be boring. I, I would agree, <laughs> but I think I think it's also my right to suggest that be as boring as you want, but but raise your hand yeah. and tell people who you really are. Because if if you're being critical, or I don't want to say it's slanderous or libel or how whatever dimension it occupies. See, but if it's if it's slanderous or libelous, and and we're made aware of it. We act on it. So there's, but that's a manual mechanism where somebody oh, sure. has to write to you and say, as I have in the past, Mo, somebody just said this about this, or my mother on this, right. and you'll you've been responsive, and the paper's been responsive. Right. I, I'm suggesting that absent that mechanical in case by case, everyone who everyone who is either published in the Forecaster or the Portland Press Herald or the Bangor Daily News or any other reputable newspaper. And to me, I want to get into the fake news discussion. For publications and for journalists like yourself, who went to school at Syracuse, who trained, who was the automotive, you know, you know, editor on an automotive, for a person who spent his career, like many other people in journalism, really uh, protecting, you know, free speech, I think if we're going to build a wall in between fake news and digital news and blogs between real journalism, there have to be some fundamental touch points. And I believe one of those is whatever is published in paper or digitally has to be attributed. And if you don't have that, that's the that's the side of fake news. I don't th- I don't think that's I, I don't think that's correct. I really don't. I don't I don't think just because somebody chooses to to remain anonymous on a website necessarily makes their opinion any less valid than the opinion of someone who, who uses their name. I think it's the content of the comment that has to be sort of viewed and judged when you're, you know, and, and especially online because access is so easy and so immediate. And that's, I mean that's why it exists. It exists so that people can provide feedback, you know, easily and and accessibly. Um, again, you can you can debate whether you should require you know registration, whether people's identities should be should be um, uh, you know checked or not, um, and 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 that's I mean that's a debate that continues in the industry. But should it be but, a debate? And again, I don't want to be kind of uh, sanctimonious on this, but I don't even think it's a debate. If somebody's criticizing me or you well, or anyone else, the, you know, that they should be able to say, hi, I'm Steve. I, I guarantee I think Mo's you. an idiot, and my name's Steve. And you're able to go, oh, Steve's upset because of this reason. But when it's anonymous, you don't know what you don't know, I, so there's no way to defend against I, it. I guarantee you that that if if the courts started to rule in in – in cases of of libel, for D- example. digital libel, right? They, if, they, if, the if they, legal if, policy could it, force it, yeah, and and that's what that's really what it'll take. Because right now, by for for publications that have you know, as I said, you know, the the, the wide open comment sections and don't take responsibility for for editing or you know or filtering. That's that's the defense. People people, I mean, no one forces you to read it. 
No one forces people to, to make comments. Um, and we're not taking responsibility for either your choice to read them or other people's decision to write them. Well, I'm not talking about a constitutional right. I'm talking no. about a standard of journalism, but, but, which, which can be self-selected. And so, you know, I, I understand the constitutional point. I just disagree that, uh, but it doesn't feel like I convinced you. If you're going to put us on a scale of one to 10, you know, where would I fall? Yeah, I would much rather see, you know, every comment on the website be signed and, you know, by some by, standard but, of identity. Yeah, yeah. But that's just not the way it is. And the way personally I deal with it, other than the fact that I sort of have to, you know, we have a section on our homepage which lists the last eight or ten you know, most recent comments. Sure, I scan that several times throughout the day just to see where the comments are, you know, which, right. which stories people are, are, are reading. To Occasionally I'll get a hint of whether it's worth looking at a little bit more deeply, you know, from just what's in the little teaser. But that's as close as I get to reading the comments. I, I choose not to. Okay. Yeah. By the way, you're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve-O, News Talk WLOB 100.5, 1310 a.m. Uh, we have Mo Melsack here. He's the executive editor of The Forecaster, a group of weekly newspapers based in Falmouth, covering about 80% of Cumberland County from uh, Scarborough up to Bath and Lakes regions. In our next few minutes, Mo, I'd like to talk about some macro journalism news uh, things beyond the forecast for a little bit. And we touched upon fake news, or I touched upon fake news. Somehow that term, that phrase has entered the lexicon in this weird way. And and my opinion, and I've stated this over the last year and a half or two years, is that what Donald Trump has done, both in, in this dimension, in terms of his, his uh, jihad against journalism and news, and what he's done through the whole political process, I think, is destructive. But what he's done relative to news and media, I think, isn't just attacking an industry, but attacking a, a cornerstone of our democracy, which involves free press, which our country was in many ways founded upon. Uh, what's your thought, either personally or as an editor, a, a you know, I don't want to say classically trained because it sounds like you're a violinist, but as a person who is traditionally trained through a journalism school and through uh, a 40-year career, what does the concept of fake news mean to you when the forecaster, the Portland Press-Herald, the Bangor Daily News, the, the, the traditional papers here in Maine, I respect and I, I know and have known many of the editors and many of the people who work there, and I may disagree with some things they, they write, but I don't recognize this concept of fake news in traditional journalism. Fake news is a red herring. Right. It's, it doesn't exist. Something is either news and truthful or as truthful as we, we can verify, or it's, it's wrong and or it's a lie or it's propaganda. I mean, fake, fake news is, is just, like I said, it's nothing. Well, it's nothing, it's an, but it's the an, most powerful person in the world, being the president of the United States, has has made it not not just a phrase and not just a campaign uh, attack, but he he has. And then yesterday he had a press conference where he literally said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he literally said, "Well, you know, you know, journalism journalists have a lower rating than politicians, and I may have had something to do with that, but I don't know. He's had everything to do with that because." He, he's created the environment that he's now criticizing. And when he calls out the Wall Street Journal, which is real news, the New York Times, the, 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 the gray lady, the, when he calls out CNN, that I would say unequivocally with, with those three outlets and to dismiss them so easily and for people not to be outraged, to me, is a news story. Why people aren't more outraged and they kind of accept that, well, yeah, fake news is a thing. I mean, I, all I could say to that is yes. Uh, <laughs> um, people have to, you know, make up their minds. We have uh, Mo Melsack here. He's the executive editor of The Forecaster. Um, I grew up a fan of great writing, great journalism. 
A few months ago, I had Ellen Goodman, a uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, who spends some time in Maine seasonally. She's a former writer in the Boston Globe, and she was syndicated. You know, And I grew up reading her, and I've got other people that I've really enjoyed. Who have been some of your heroes that you look back on either as columnists or writers that you think have really influenced your sense of journalism or writing style? You know, it's 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 funny because there, are, rather than just like one or two names, there were collections that I read when I was, for example, in college. Um, there was a collection of of Wall Street Journal feature stories um, called "The Best of the Wall Street Journal," I think, which showed me that that you know there was there was more than a you know, one way to write a good news story, for example. Right. Um, uh, there was a. There were other other ways you can tell stories. There, there. You know, I mean, it, it eventually became sort of dissected as you know the narrative styles and and very variations on that. Um, I think the the style section of the Washington Post was influential for me because again they. It wasn't just about style; it was about life and and telling stories. Right, um, and I think that's what the best the best journalism does. The best columnists do. Um, they, you know, they they tell stories that that people want to read. Um, and uh, whether it's local, national, um, you have to engage the reader. I agree. So, some of my heroes, Hunter S. Thompson, yeah, kind of yeah. a gonzo journalist, a unique yeah. voice, Thomas Wolfe, Ken Kesey. And there was a golf writer who wrote for Sports Illustrated, Dan Jenkins, who was a great novelist and a writer. But one of my interesting Wall, Wall Street Journal stories is when I was in Atlanta a few years ago living, I was interviewed by this guy, John Hellyer, uh, while he was at the Wall Street Journal. He's now with Bloomberg, I think. He and Brian Burroughs co-wrote Barbarians mm-hmm. at the Gate, mm-hmm. and he was in my living room. And that was one of the great well, books, great investigative books about, you know, Reynolds and Barbarians at the Gate. Yeah, well, you know, who, I mean, I, I mean, this is, I wouldn't call him a journalist, but Eric Larson, right? you know, I mean, sort of weaving, you know, the, the story uh, based on the fact, I mean, um, it's a real, it's a real talent, and it's, and it's, you know, my again, my hat always goes off to people who can, who can sort of, you know, keep you engaged um, on something where, where you may even know the story from beginning to end sure. before you even start. Um, yeah, and it's just in the telling. Well, I'd love to have you come back sometime. I think the forecaster plays a really important role and as uh, a cohesive role relative to communities and information and students and. Uh, Thank you for being here today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve News Talk WLOB 100.5, 1310 AM. We will be back next week. Thank you.